seventh chapter, in verse 1, give me one moment here to reorient myself. For the past few weeks, we have seen in chapter 6, the Lord prepare his disciples, his apostles, to the ministry that they were called to. These 12 would have a special calling and work, and therefore they needed some special training, perhaps seminary in some regards. And Jesus did not pull punches. He gave them some of the hardest tasks as his disciples. They would love their enemies as themselves. They would be blessed even when they were persecuted and lowly, and that they were called not to judge lest they themselves be judged. Difficult commands. But what we see as we enter chapter 7 is a little different now, and it's we get back to some of those healings. We see the application in some ways of the previous chapter. How do you apply this theology as apostles in the church, as a disciples in the church? Well, we will see that it comes through healing, resurrection, transfer, transformation, and ultimately forgiveness. And so stand with me as we hear from Luke chapter 7, and we'll be picking up in verse 1. This is the word of God. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume you to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Have you ever been desperate? It seems that in this passage today we have a desperate scenario, a desperate situation that demanded immediate response. I was reared in perhaps a lower middle-class home, and budgets were often tight in my own upbringing. This hit home as I transitioned to college, and I had to figure out how on earth will I afford to go to college. You see, Aunt Sally Mae was a little slow in approving my loan, and classes seemed to start sooner rather than later, and I started to get a little desperate because if I didn't have my first payment for something in by a certain date, 
my classes would all be removed from my schedule and I'd be taking no classes. I got kind of desperate. I was in a desperate situation, wondering, oh Lord, if this is your will, how on earth are you going to achieve me getting to this school? I remember I cut for cut lawns for a guy named Tim. We would wake up every morning as early as possible, right when the sun came up, and we would cut lawns all day till the sun went down. And I shared my deep need to him. And he was just another blue-collar man like I was a blue-collar man. But he, on that day, said, you know what, Scott, I'll give you an advance on your work. And we're going to get you through this desperate situation. We all have gone through desperate situations, and we see one here today. Spiritually speaking, we are all in desperate need of help. We are unworthy to achieve our own righteousness, our own goodness. We are unable to achieve in ourselves our own spiritual ends. We need someone who is more adequate than us. We are all a desperately spiritual people. And today we see just that, an adequate Christ for a desperately spiritualist man. We are all like the centurion in many ways. And we see that as the centurion realizes his need, he comes to the one and only who can fulfill it. The one adequate man. The gracious gospel then comes to all of those who find themselves unworthy. Whether they be a Jewish man in Israel or a pagan centurion. Surely we can all empathize with this as born-again Christians. Despite all that we see in our own spiritual growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, we still sometimes sense a desperation. We wish we would grow quicker. We wish we were less self-independent. We wish that we were less prideful. It is natural in our own sinful world to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and trudge on in independence. We would be like the Pharisees, perhaps, in this passage, seeing our own self-worth bound within our own pride. We want to be worthy, don't we all? That's a longing within each and every one of your hearts. You want to be worthy. You want your parents to see your worth. You want your own worth to be seen by others. But how do we accomplish that? We tend to idolize that by our own accomplishments. If I look out in a congregation such as this, I see an accomplished people. But when we set our own self-worth on our accomplishments, we might fall into the snare that we see in the elders of this passage. So what I want you to see today is I want you to recognize your own unworthiness before Christ. And when you do that, he will graciously offer that gospel to you. I want you to sense your own unworthiness to Christ. And when you do that, he will graciously offer you the gospel. In order to do that, though, the first thing you must know is that we need help. In order to sense your own unworthiness, the first thing you must realize and reckon with is that you yourself need help. And we see that in verse 1 and 2. After Jesus leaves Capernaum, he says this in verse 2, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and to the point of death, who was highly valued to him. We see the need for help within this passage. As Jesus leaves... He's already helped many people throughout this gospel. Even as Jesus was teaching the disciples and the apostles how to live faith in Christ, as he was teaching them the ethics of Christianity, 
that is met with bunches and many healings, the casting out demons, but none of them get a story. This nameless centurion does, though. So we've got to ask why, because we see his need most plainly. There is a need. But who was this centurion? Centurion is an interesting character. By birthright, he is not a Jew. He's a Greco-Roman of some capacity. He served under Herod Antipas. He probably had 60 to 100 men that he led, but he is a different centurion. You expect a war-torn vet to have this grizzled nature about him, but we don't necessarily get that of this man. What do we see of this centurion? We see that he is compassionate. He has high regard for his servant. We see that he is generous. He built the synagogue there in Capernaum. See that he is humble. He lowers himself and recognizes that I need to send someone else to meet with the Messiah. And he was a believer. This is a different type of centurion. He was friendly with the Jewish leaders. He knows them well and he asks them for a favor upon the behalf of another. But this centurion was a man who was in great need. He had a servant who was sick on the point of death. The word servant there perhaps could paint a better picture if we translated it. He has a dying slave. You're reminded as we've talked about slaves or servants in the past that there had sometimes been like, what, what is the life of a slave in the ancient world? Well, what we learn is that slaves were viewed as human tools. They were those who would be used and discarded in many regards. It's interesting then that this centurion would have such value and regard for his slave that he would seek this help. This centurion desired to have those who served under him healed. You can sense the general desperateness when death confronts us, right? When you are faced with death in front of you, you might get a little desperate. Bruce Milne in his book, Know the Truth, says this, death confronts us as nothing else does. With our insignificance and weakness, it exposes the folly of our own pretensions to greatness. Even when we attempt to face death with courage, we never succeed in finally overcoming it. It dominates us until at last we too receive the wages of sin. Death can make man desperate. You've perhaps faced that yourself. Whether you yourself has faced death or you know someone who has. We all know death. And this centurion does too. And I can empathize with him as well. But it is not a hopeless situation. You might wonder, did this centurion, why on earth would he go to Jesus for help? Well, my guess is that this highly valued servant of his had already gotten his second opinion. He had gone to the doctors. He had gone to his oversight, think of Herod, asking for help. But the, the, the diagnosis remained the same. He was ready for death. This highly valued servant was honored and respected by this centurion. Love, perhaps, viewed as precious. And therefore, when this centurion heard the good news of Christ, the one who could heal, 
he thought, this is the man that has exactly what I need. The first thing you need to recognize in this passage is that you need help. You need help, greater help than a mere sickness that might kill you. You need spiritual help. And the Lord in his grace offers the church and the Lord Jesus Christ most poignantly to that end for help. As a pastor, I often visit hospitals. I I learn hospitals like the back of my hand, even when they seem like labyrinths to you. And one of the saddest things I have to experience as a pastor is for those who go in the hospital, they never tell anyone. They go in alone, they stay alone, and they leave alone. May it not be so in the church. Tell me so that I could be with you. Admit your need for help, whether it be physical or even spiritual. Call upon Christ. Call upon the church because we all need help. We have to recognize our need for help, and it's only when we recognize our need for help that the second point comes really close behind. When you recognize your need for help, you then sense that you are unworthy. So as we're thinking, the first few verses, we see that we need help. The centurion needs help. And what that leads the centurion to understanding is that he is unworthy. Verse 3 picks up who the elders of the church think of this centurion. Look at verse 3 with me. And when they came to Jesus, after the centurion had sent them, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. You see, in this passage, we see two very different pictures of the centurion. The one picture is painted by the Jewish leaders. They say to Jesus Christ, this man is worthy to be in your presence. Why is he worthy? If you look at verse 5, because he loves our nation, he loves us, and he loves our church. He's built our church. This man deserves to be in your presence. That's what the Jewish leaders say. You should support his cause because he is a worthy man. He is a man that is worthy of help. He is an achieved man, an accomplished man. He has done all the right things in his life. He is a successful man. It's interesting that a centurion would have the ability to build a synagogue. There's only one way a centurion would have that sort of cash and capital. That means he was a successful centurion. He went on conquests and he came back victorious and he was rewarded for that. Polybius uh, said this, that the men, that the men, the man in this passage is a man who can command, steady in action and reliable. When hard pressed, he was ready to hold ground and to die at his posts. This was by all external measurements, a worthy man. Externally, by his own works, this man was worthy to be before Christ. Everyone who judged him would have judged him so. He was a worthy man to the elders because the elders thought of the own man's personal merit. What has this man done? What works has he produced? What evidences of his life show that he will pass on a great legacy to his children. 
They said, this is a great man. Therefore, he is worthy to be under the same roof of Christ. But is he? Look at verse 3 again. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. Why doesn't this worthy man go himself? It's because even in this passage, we see that the centurion has a different estimation of his own self-worth. He can't go before Jesus the Messiah. He needs someone else to go in his stead because he does not deserve to be under the same roof as the Messiah. Think of the general optics of the situation that the centurion and his government were oppressors to the Jews. Why on earth would this Messiah want to see those who have oppressed the people that he has called himself to save? He has his own self-worth diminished thinking about who he was coming into contact with despite his rank as a commander, despite his successes, despite him building the synagogue and loving the Jewish people. He doesn't sense himself as worthy. He needs to send a group on his behalf to say what he needs. This is only further confirmed as you go down to verse 6 that says, Lord as they are going to the centurion, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to come under your roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. We see the sense of his own self-worth disappear as he senses his own unworthiness. I, as a great centurion, have no ability for you to join me in my house. He can fathom the Messiah coming because he is unworthy. It's kind of backwards. The request is somewhat interesting. When we think of healings in the New Testament, we think of presence, right? And even in the modern movements throughout all of evangelicalism, there is this sense of presence with healing. Obviously, we are much different in our understanding of that, but presence is almost always associated with healing. And here we see the faith of the centurion, who in sensing his own unworthiness, he also at the same time senses the incomplete, unfettered power of Christ himself. That all Jesus has to say is do it and it will be done. There, were, there was no hocus pocus, no rituals that had to be done in order to heal this sick and dying servant. All I need is your word. And I think that, that little phrase right there in verse 7 and 8 is why this is included in the scriptures. Because everyone wanted Jesus to perform a very outward, in front sign in order to believe. But this centurion doesn't need to see. He trusts. He doesn't need Jesus in his presence. He knows. He knows that by the word of Christ alone, Christ will heal. All I need you, Jesus, to say is do it and it will be done. We are given a great illustration. He uses his own authority, seeing Christ's greater authority, when he says, when I tell my people, go, they go, come, they come. Do this and they do that. 
in a contemporary illustration, perhaps it is like an army captain who comes to an impassable river and everyone in their own minds is saying, there's no way we could pass it. And the sergeant says, go. And what do those troops do? They drive with their military vehicles right through the impassable river. Why? Because the sergeant said to do it. That is what's happening here. The centurion is saying, Jesus, if you say do it, if you say this man will be healed, is healed, he will be healed. Do it and make it so, and it will happen. But what is it? Is he worthy or unworthy? Does the centurion have a right estimation of himself, or are the Jewish leaders correct? Is he a great man? Well, perhaps he's a great Gentile in some respect. But I think the centurion is right on the money. He has been, of course, a Gentile that's lived a good life. Many people do that in our own country. Seemed like a good man. He cared for his servants. He gave money to the local church. He helped those in need. Shouldn't he have special consideration? Perhaps we think that way. I give to the church my time, my money, my efforts. Shouldn't I have special consideration for my works? The answer is no. No in the sense of your own self-righteousness. No one can say that I am worthy to receive God's favor. No one can say to God, God, you owe me. You owe me for this one. I was such a good, humble servant. I helped build Providence Presbyterian Church's fabled building. No one can say that. But there is good news here. Because Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, all are justified freely by grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. There is a solution here. There is a worthiness to be found and possessed, but it is not a worthiness that is found within us alone. It doesn't come even by the presence of Christ. It comes in him sending his spirit to us and then granting us life itself. Are you worthy? No, not in yourself. But don't ruin the opportunity and leave melancholy because you sense that own unworthiness. Because there is good news. Jesus has mercy for you. Though you are a sinner, though you come unworthy into his presence, he has the promise that I do believe his word. And his word tells me that a sinner such as I, an unworthy centurion such as I, can be saved today. Are you unworthy? Of course. But that leads us to the last point, and that is that Jesus is adequate. Yes, you need help. Yes, you are unworthy. But good news for you is that Jesus himself is adequate. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What I love about this centurion is that he never meets Jesus Christ. Sometimes I wonder in my own mind's eye, what would it be like if I went 2,000 years ago and lived in Palestine, Israel? Well, what would it be like if I lived there? Well, I, I just want to see Jesus, you know. I just want to see Jesus' ministry, be blessed by it, grow in the faith. But maybe if we lived in the first century Israel, we would be like this centurion, <laughs> He would have almost the same exact faith that you have here today. He's heard the stories about Jesus, but he has never seen Jesus. 
Sometimes I wonder, would my faith be made greater if I just saw Jesus? And what we see here today is no. The centurion had almost greater faith. It's Jesus himself says it, though he has never seen the Christ. Sometimes we think, if I just see, if I just hear, if I just taste, if I just feel, my faith would be just so much better. But verse 9 puts a cap on it. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This centurion is much like you and I. I want you to see that. He's heard the stories. Perhaps we have even a greater repository of work and word than even he did. He had just heard the stories of Jesus. We have the words of Jesus right here in our hands every Sunday. Perhaps we had more revelation. We did have more revelation than him. And that's why we see such a great faith. That despite never seeing, despite never coming in contact with, he trusts Jesus to the end of saying, you don't even have to come here, Lord. Just say your word and it will be so. This man gets the gospel. And I hope you can have the same sort of clutch of the gospel that he has as well. He doesn't need to see Christ, and he knows Christ. What is the miraculous end of the story? You see it in verse 10 all so well. And those who have been set to return to the house, what did they find? They found the servant well. What's surprising and perhaps somewhat ironic, we never see Jesus say anything. (laughs) You might wonder, what did Jesus say? Did he say your servant is healed? We have no idea. There's no record of Jesus even saying anything, but what we do know is that Jesus did heal. Sometimes wonder, what did you say, Jesus? Maybe he just said something simple. May it be so. It is done. He sent them on their way. The great Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, once said, a greater miracle of healing. There's no greater miracle of healing than this. It's nowhere recorded in the Gospels. Without even seeing the sufferer, without touching his hand, without looking in his eye, our Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. He speaks, and the sick man is cured. He commands and the disease departs. The slave is healed through faith here. And this is the same faith that you yourself can be healed by. We all have a problem. We all have a sinful nature that is bound within us, whether we are thinking sinful thoughts now, doing sinful things later. We all have been marred by the fall of Adam. Every one of us, even the little Henry I baptized today, was born into sin and needs Jesus Christ himself. That's why we baptized him. Because he needs Jesus just like you need Jesus. He is a little sinner. Just like you are a little sinner. He needs Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is adequate. He's adequate to save Henry and he's adequate to save you. Though you are unworthy as you are, as helpless as you may be, The good news of the gospel is Jesus is adequate, and by a single word, you may be healed.
For the Christian today, this remains great news. Do not let the the age-old faith that you've matured so much under lose grip and fall away out and slip from your hands. Continue to remind yourself of the great faith that truly saved you. Recall your own baptism today. Recall that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ applied the benefits of that baptism, called you out of darkness and into light. Remember that you cannot be righteous in yourself. Isn't that the tendency of every one of our hearts? I gave a little more today. I did a little better. Look how great I am, Jesus. Remember in great humility the life of the centurion. Remember that Jesus is adequate for you. But for the unbeliever today, I do not want to be presumptuous you hear the heart of the gospel. You need to sense your own need. You need to sense that you truly, no matter what you do in this life, will be unworthy. And that you need an adequate Savior. Today, if you hear his voice, maybe more than any other day, do not harden your hearts. Call upon the Christ that is adequate. Be like the centurion. Send a group of people to get the Christ to you because you need him for life. Reminded of the great hymn, though we won't sing it today because I was just too torn. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Call upon the risen Lord, for in him alone you will have life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the opportunity to see the great promises of your scripture. As we baptize little ones, as we perhaps re-up our faith, as we are reminded of the great assurances that are offered to Christ himself, I pray, O Lord, today that you'd prick all of our consciences that we would not walk away as a normal day, but that we would be refreshed and renewed by the gospel, transformed by the gospel even if not before, and that today we would hear your voice in this holy word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.